0: The world doesn't need more stuff. Better packaging or a a prettier can is not an answer. It's not a solution. What is the problem that currently exists in the world that your product is solving? That should be number one. Number two needs to be, can I make this profitably or can I get there in the next couple of years? And that starts off with margin.
1: Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I am super excited today to have Allison Kane with me. She is the CEO and founder of Haven's Kitchen. So welcome to the podcast, Allison. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thanks, Christy. I'm very happy to be here and talk about our sauces. Yes. So please give us first a little bit of background on Haven's Kitchen and then tell us how you wound up doing this.
0: Yes. Well, it is a it is a little bit of a long story. So I tend to be a little long-winded and I'm, I'm still working on the elevator pitch after 10 years. A very long story short, I went back to get a degree in sustainability and food systems when I was 40. I had five kids and I was at home with them until then. Wow. And before, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, My goodness. And, okay.
1: That's wild. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's the story. No, I thought that I would go into public health. I was always really into policy, always into like urban planning, urban development, how, you know, policy can really impact both negatively and positively people living, especially I grew up in New York City, and I was always kind of interested in the machinations there. But what ended up happening when I went back to get my master's is I had... To to get an internship, which sounds like a plot of a, you know, I don't know, Diane Keaton movie. movie. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So I went to get an internship at the Union Square Green Market. And I had always been teaching cooking to friends, friends of friends, ever since like middle school, college, you know, was always a huge cook, really avid farmers market shopper but then what happened when i started doing the tours was that i started really connecting home cooking with sustainability animal you know practices fair labor practices you know human health community health and decided to open a cooking school So in 2012, I opened Haven's Kitchen, which was a cooking school in the Flatiron District of New York. It was not a professional school. It was for people who just wanted to learn how to make dinner and not feel really stressed out about it. And after about five years of teaching, a couple things started really popping up. One was that a lot of our students had tried subscribing to meal kits and then unsubscribing because they didn't quite scratch the itch of Making cooking less stressful. Two, they were learning how to make these sauces—the chimichurri, or romesco, a peanut lemongrass sauce. But they kept saying the same thing over and over, which was, you know, this is a lot of work. It's hard to get this flavor. It's chopping and a lot of ingredients, and blending, and roasting, and clean up, and can you just put these into packages for us? And then the third was really that my personal mission, as you know, was always about, you know, sustainability and helping people feel really confident in their kitchens. And I am not able to scale that in a cooking school. And what I thought was I can use these pouches of sauce in people's kitchens almost as like little, you know, starfish earrings that are saying like, you can do this, you can make this, like, we'll help you. And almost reach many more people through packaged good than I could through butts and seats. And so that's how it was born.
1: Wow. So it wasn't like you had this burning desire to create a CPG brand. No, I would say I did not have a burning desire,
0: nor do I continue to. (laughs) You know, I'm a... It's a weird job to have, but no, I'll say, you know, of course, I love making people's lives better. I love, you know, even today, just now, like someone posted on our LinkedIn, like, you're a staple in my home, you make my life better, you know, that's what it's all about. But I'm a little bit of like, you know, I'm kind of an old hippie and I don't think that the world needs stuff just for the sake of stuff. So it was really important to me that if I was going to put something in a package out into the world, that it had all of the integrity that I feel like I have when it comes to food and food policy. And, and so I, you know, I did my absolute best to make that the case.
1: So how many years ago did you start the brand
0: of sauces? So we launched in 14 Whole Foods and on Fresh Direct, which is a regional e-commerce grocer in March of 2018. Okay. And yeah, then we went to the region of Whole Foods and we opened Wegmans and the Fresh Market and a bunch of independents on the East Coast. And then crazy, just like weird timing, we went national with Whole Foods the first week of the pandemic. So, in the same week, basically, my brick and mortar business closed. Yeah. And my sauce business grew by, you know, 600%. Wow.
1: Wild. Mm-hmm. And
0: then, yeah. I
1: have so many questions for you about the beginning, but talk really quickly about what happened after COVID, because a lot of brands had this giant spike during COVID because of e commerce and because people needed to be home cooking. What's happened? Have you maintained or have you had a little bit of a drop off? Yeah, actually, I mean, no Whole Foods, we just got our data
0: today. We're up 20% in units year over year to last year. That's units. That's Mm -hmm. not even dollars. That means like people are really buying it and buying it again and again. You know, we're still trying to figure out what our baseline is. Like we Mm -hmm. went national the first week of COVID. Now the Teasing out the headwinds and the tailwinds of COVID Mm -hmm. is still, I think, you know, for someone probably with an IQ like 30 points higher than me. But I will say that for all of the tailwind of people at home and cooking more from home, the headwinds were – those people weren't necessarily going into stores – To do discovery of new products, right? right? So we were now on the shelves in Nashville and Sacramento and you know Scranton or you know, and those people had never heard of us. Mm -hmm. So know that the bump for us, you know, perhaps in the Northeast because people who already knew us and loved us wanted to buy us more. Yeah, and I think a lot of people who were like, "Oh, chimichurri is great on my steak," it might also be really good on my eggs and on my fish and you know and oh i really trust this brand for their ginger miso why don't i try you know the tahini while yep. i'm at it yep. so yep. I, I can see that i can definitely see that the people who loved us loved us more and i think that's why our velocity's always been so strong but i don't necessarily think that we saw as much of a covid bump as let's say a bunch of the d2c brands that people mm-hmm. were just kind of scrolling and maybe they were bored and they were going to try new things because people weren't tootling around in stores like, oh, this looks like I might want to oh. try it. you know they had their orders, they knew their things and they just kind of hit repeat, repeat, add to basket, add to basket. And then you know the other piece of it is there's this long tail of real labor shortages in grocery stores and labor shortages in grocery stores means fundamentally that they are resetting less frequently. Mm-hmm. So you know if you think about taking a whole shelf, And getting rid of some of the products, making new tags, putting up new products across 500 stores, that is a huge laborious task. And they're still not there. They still Mm -hmm. don't have the manpower that they had in 2019. It affects refrigerated and frozen more than it does shelf stable because of the time that it takes. And you need to make sure that you're getting things off and getting things on and they're not getting temperate. So getting new distribution has actually been a little bit challenging in COVID and post-COVID simply because of the logistics of grocery, you know, the grocery world.
1: Yep, yep, yep. It's a weird one. It's so fascinating because you started at such an interesting time and you had the cooking school, which gave you some awareness, but it did not give you awareness across the whole country, not awareness enough to get national distribution. So how did you get the distribution to begin with?
0: We were like killing it. To use an expression I don't usually use, I look at the world a little bit like assets and liabilities are like just two different sides of the same coin right? So everything that's good can be a liability and everything that's bad can be an asset. It's just kind of how you spin it and how you use it. So, you know, in our case, there is no competition for us. We created a brand new category. There are no fresh sauces on the shelf.
1: I do think people have tried it and I just don't think anyone's had success yet until you, and that could just be the quality of what you're putting out there. I
0: think it also, there's an amount of patience that's needed. There's almost, I am not innovating for the sake of innovation, which, you know, I think comes with a little bit of maybe age. <laughs> I'm just not, I don't
1: value innovation for innovation's sake, well, like I said wisdom, early on, right? you know. It's not just age, yeah, it's wisdom. It's knowing that that's not what's going to, like, I think that's one of the things I've heard the most from investors more than from founders is that over-innovating is not what you need to do. What you need to do yeah. is make things that people really need and do a great job at the things you're doing.
0: Yeah. And going back to, you know, why we, you know, we launched in these 14 New York City stores, you know, we are on a shelf next to sauerkraut, kimchi, and jackfruit, Who's going to do the best, right? I mean, we just were like cranking out velocity Mm -hmm. compared to our neighbors. And at the end of the day, that velocity, you will be benchmarked to your neighbors. So we're not necessarily going to do what a salty snack or a beverage is going to do from a velocity perspective, but we're lapping the people around us. So Whole Foods takes a look at that data and they're like, huh, okay, so go from the 14 stores. Let's see how you do in the region. So now you're going further away from home base. People in Albany didn't necessarily know the cooking school, right? right? So if you can chalk some of that velocity up to people knowing the cooking school, let's see what happens when we take it, you know, to New Jersey and upstate. And we did even better. So then they were like, okay, so now let's take you and put you in national and see what happens. And even though I don't necessarily think that – you know, people n- knew us so much. I do think that the eight years of the cooking school, we were so beloved. I know that now in a way that I never knew it when the school was open. We oh, were doing it. And I think that what happened was a lot of our, like, hyper fans moved home or moved to, you know, what we call secondary and tertiary cities when the pandemic happened. And they saw this little slice of this thing that they associated with goodness, with fun, with home cooking. They trusted the brand. And maybe they were just like our little, you know, our little whisperers yeah. in these yeah. cities across the country. Because I don't otherwise know, know why. Why? I mean, that's so I think it's a great product, but yeah,
1: it is a great product or that wouldn't be happening. So that's a fact. How did you, um, so you were, I think this happens to people. They think they stumble, like maybe they didn't plan on an idea, but they stumble on it, but then they have to figure out how to make it. Right. So you knew how to mm-hmm. make this. Mm-hmm. How did you figure out how to make them at scale? What was that process like for you?
0: Someone just asked me that and I was like we have learned a lot you know the the original formulas were recipes that we taught people they're in my cookbook you know <laughs> like there's no big secret we had to you know there's certain ingredients that you know you cannot you can't put fresh garlic in a product per the FDA right it's just like a bacteria hodgepodge. So you have to use, you know, IQF or frozen garlic, things like that. So we knew pretty quickly that there were certain things that needed to be sort of like scalable and a little bit more like grown up from like a formula perspective. And, you know, as we kind of grew out of the kitchen, you know, we were in an incubator kitchen. Then we went to a co-packer in Brooklyn where we were still like hand filling the sauce and putting stickers on the pouches and things like that, when we moved to the current co-packer that's like a professional like SQF level three facility in Rochester, we worked with them, you know, to sort of streamline some of the steps and make some of it a little bit more user-friendly for like large scale. But we still, you know, we have a very small pakeo pepper producer that we work with and a macrute lime leaf, you know, producer that we work with in California. And, we have a lot of unique ingredients which is not what is recommended <laughs> necessarily no. for right. you know products like ours so you know we've learned and as we innovate you know and as we've added more skus we've figured out like this is an ideal product margin for us and let's try not to use a complete new set of ingredients maybe there's mm-hmm. some overlap and we can get some cost savings and things like that but you know we're launching a new product line speaking of innovation in a couple months and you know out of the gate will be, you know, above a 60% product margin, which is just like table stakes for me. So I feel like, you know, we've learned a lot and it took us a few years.
1: At what point did you feel like you were onto something that was going to grow into a business that you, an unexpected business that you're now in?
0: You know, it's funny because I had this massive, what's the word for it? You know, like, a focus group. I had this massive yes. group like a real, of people real time. Yep. every day, real time for that. years. And you know, there's something that you learn in food studies and it's this process that's called extensification and it sounds sort of like it's a fancy word for basically saying, "Yes, do trends happen on, you know, the coasts? Does the elite, as they would call it, like tend to like a flavor or bring a flavor in?" and then it becomes part of the lexicon or the vernacular of the society, that is what happens. So, you know, chimichurri in 2018 was not on every menu in every city around. If you look now, it's all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. So we're, I knew enough to know that if my students were saying, this is a problem, there is a market, we need help even mm-hmm. though they might be a select group of people in New York City who could afford to go to a cooking class, there was a there there. And then, doctor, you know, you look at the yeah. size of the category, it's, you know, condiments is huge. Oh it tends God. to be a beautiful category. It tends to be recession-proof, especially when you're premium. So, you know, the logistics piece of like putting it in a pouch and putting it in fresh and introducing new flavors and There was a lot of consumer education that I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing again. But again, it turned out to be an asset for us because it made us strengthen our content muscle. It Mm -hmm. made us strengthen our messaging muscle. You Mm -hmm. know, so many things that we had, we just put something out that looked like everything else in a jar on a shelf in the middle of the store. I don't know that we would have built the muscle that we now have, which is really serving us well.
1: That's so wild. When did you put together your first plan? Like you said, this is it. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to grow this brand and scale it. And here's my plan. And then did you raise capital or did you self-fund? Talk about that. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to, you know, one of the things that we did at the
0: cooking school was we did these activations, you know, in my day, we called them parties, but (laughs) somewhere between like 2014 and 2018, they started calling them activations. I mean, we did Siggy's first party. We did Instacart's first event. We did things for Casper, L'Oreal, Care Of, you know, you name it, we did them. As a cooking and school, yeah. As a cooking school because we had a massive event space. And yep. what we were able to do was we were able to take your brand's identity, you know, your brand pillars, whatever you were launching, whatever you were excited about, and turn it into a culinary experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're talking about using algae in hair care, we had a seafood thing or you know, we did for Casper, we did this big breakfast in bed party where like everyone wore pajamas and we served like eggs and french toast sticks and things like that. So, I was starting to understand that these brands that there were kind of these physics to the way that these brands were thinking about being built and that there was a a little bit of a playbook. You know, Sir Kensington's was coming up at that time. Bonza was coming up at that time. And I started talking to the people that worked for those brands because I was running their, the event space, you know, and then I started meeting operations people and I started meeting finance people and, you know, going back to the core question is, you know, there's some physics that you cannot defy no matter how good your product is. And that is margin and velocity, right? A core group of like consumers that like love you. And for me to get to the margin that I needed to get to, I needed to have buy-in from a co-packer because the process that we use is high pressure pasteurization. It's very expensive. So in order for me to kind of have, you know, I'm offering this co-packer a percentage of my company, but the percentage of what? Like we didn't have a value yet. So I needed to do a fundraise essentially to get a valuation and also to bring in a little cash to support what we knew was going to be this Whole Foods launch. And so that was really, you know, the first fundraise. My plan was always, you know, the thing I kept hearing over and over from these smart people who were doing things in my space was, You need to find a people, like a group of people that are obsessed with you
1: Mm -hmm. before
0: you start going out, right? Awareness for awareness's sake is just ego. Mm -hmm. And what you're really trying to do, you need enough awareness to keep feeding the funnel, right? But the goal, like I said earlier, is if you come in because you like chimichurri, I don't want you just buying chimichurri. I want you buying all five of our flavors. Or yep. if you use it at night, I want you to know that you can use it in any other yep. day part. You know, yep. And yep. that's the job of the marketing team, essentially.
1: Those are things people really struggle with for a long time. And even people with backgrounds in entrepreneurship or brand building yeah. struggle with those things because you get so caught up in your own, what you were just talking about. I want everyone to know. I want everyone to taste it. I want to be in... Thousands and thousands of stores at the same time, even though I have no idea how I'm going to support them. How did you have the discipline to not do all those things that most people do?
0: I didn't have the choice. I didn't have the luxury of having an easy to transport, easy to sell, you know, a super high margin business. So I was forced pretty early on to really focus in on what was going to be profitable. I don't have the luxury of a names of sauces that people even know what the hell they are. Right. 60% of Americans maybe know what chimichurri and tahini are. So I have no business going into places. Yeah. And A, being like, hey, here's some sauce in a pouch that you – why – B, it's a name you've never heard of. C, it's also in the refrigerator, which is not where you at all are used to shopping. And it's going to be next to things that look nothing like it. Even if I wanted, and believe me, right? Like you live on LinkedIn, you see launch after launch and yes. door counts and, yes. and all sorts of like hype beast kind of nonsense. And, you know, I kept being like, but we're actually making cooking easier and more fun and it's really it is the healthiest product like that there is like there was an article today about why nutritionists love us that I didn't even know was coming out and that's all real why isn't anyone talking about it you know cuz we didn't have that hype machine yeah because yeah. they like new stuff and we also we have an R&D process the way that I mean our shelf life testing works is basically they inject everything under the sun into a pouch of sauce and they watch it for a year and if something grows then <laughs> it doesn't pass and if it doesn't grow then we get a 6 month shelf life there's no speeding that process up yeah. so i didn't even have the like the luxury of trying to make a lot of skews yeah. because i couldn't so I'd love to say that I had discipline and it was me being smart and wise and all that. And I think there's something to that. But I also think it's just, it wasn't in the cards for this product.
1: That is so wild. So talk about the challenges then, because it sounds like things have gone in a very logical, makes sense. You bumped into a great product idea based on something else you were doing. You slowly built the brand and the quality and all the things. But what about challenges?
0: I mean, how long do we have because <laughs> I could
1: talk for the
0: next couple hours. I mean, challenges, let's start with making it, right? There are, you know, more rain in California than usual. That means that our Makrut lime supplier does not have Makrut lime leaves to sell, there was a mirin shortage last year, a global mirin shortage. Did you know that? Like, who would know that? Why would anyone know that? War, pestilence, trucks, labor, pandemics, you know, people having to work six feet apart, of freight prices, like everything supply chain is challenging. Again, then you talk about resets and grocery stores and turnover and, you know, grocery buyers have gotten just like everything beaten out of them over the last couple of years. You know, in 2019, they were talking about innovation and the perimeter of the store and people wanting fresh and healthy things. And, you know, then they got three years of hand sanitizer and toilet paper and, you know, bulk rice, like mystery, Um, and people just leaving and no one coming back, you know? So supply chain has just been a complete Pain in the ass, honestly. And getting more distribution, you know, I am all about growing velocity in the stores we're in. But if they can't even staff a reset, then they're going to do fewer of them. And for brands that are new and emerging, trying to get places, even though our data is phenomenal, and even though we have a really great group of, you know, people who love us and want us. Just even getting time on the calendar with a buyer because they're just not even touching their sets for a while, you know. So that's been challenging. I would say that where it hasn't been challenging is the brand love, you know. And I think the brand love is really what happens when you listen, and we're very good listeners, you know. And that's why. We were able to take a brick and mortar, understand what the real need was of the people that we were, you know, taking care of and giving them a product that suited their needs. We continue to do that. But everything about making it and selling it is challenging. And, you know, for a fresh product with a four-month shelf life, a demand plan is really hard. We have months where we dispose of product and we also have to short some of our customers because there's just no way to plan it perfectly. So it's challenging.
1: I mean, in a it, good it, way. Amazing product. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who uh, makes a, a snack, like a dried vegetable snack and same thing, like sometimes they can do it and it's all great. And then sometimes the weather just is, makes it literally impossible to plan. So yeah. it's a while. I mean, it's like of all the things you could do in the grocery store that you're doing a tough one. There are so many things out of our control now with supply chain and all this stuff, but you also are dealing with weather and things that nobody can has ever been able We're to. We're
0: dealing install. with real food. Real yeah, food. I mean, yeah. you know, real yeah. food and real sesame seeds, you know, they vary and roasting times on sesame seeds vary. And then the, you know, all of it, it's like, you know, and, and things need to be grown and you need sunlight and you need just the right amount of rain and you need people and you need, There are not to be, you know, disruptions to that. And we're operating on such thin margins anyway, you know, better margins, fortunately, than a brick and mortar. But, you know, if something goes up a little, it kind of puts the whole thing out of whack. But I like to think, you know, my team and I are very much like we have done the hardest possible thing and we have succeeded. So now we get to do things that are a little less hard. We're not doing easy but we're doing things a little less hard. So that's good.
1: Where do you want the brand to be? What do you want to happen with it? How big do you want it to get? What's your end goal and what's your time frame?
0: Yeah. I think at this point, I know that this is not a family business for the rest of my life and my kids' lives. That said, I don't really want to build it for an exit because I think that that's a playbook that has not worked particularly well in the last couple of years. So I've it decided like that. Words,
1: right? It feels like if you started doing that, you'd be taking shortcuts and cost savings that wor- would yeah. not fit your consumers well.
0: And not only that, but you know the strategics, they change what they're looking for and, and what worked yesterday doesn't work today. And mm-hmm. So my goal is basically, you know, it goes back to the mission. You know, I started this business in the first place because home cooking is an amazing thing to do for yourself, for your family, for your community, for the, for the environment, for animals, for farm laborers. Like, It is a beautiful thing to do. And unfortunately, people are really stressed out they're stressed out about buying food, shopping, making the lists, deciding what to make, cooking, cleaning, you know, all of it. And if my, like, product and the content that we make supporting that product can make people's lives better, and I can do it in a way that's profitable, and in the meantime, I can build careers for people that work with me mm-hmm. and set them up in really good ways for their futures, and and we can have, like, of the time, pleasure doing it. 20% it just kind of sucking, but that's okay. Then that's the plan. We've always been a home cooking brand. We're not a sauce brand and we've always kind of positioned ourselves that way. So we can really be in any part of the store that helps you feel confident and like have more fun making a meal. Um, And so that's kind of where we see the brand going and no one is really doing it the way we are. So it's kind of fun to just think about where that could go.
1: Yeah, it is. Did you found the company on your own? Was it just you or did you have a partner when you started?
0: I opened the cooking school by myself. It was one of those, I'm a little freaked out by the world and I'm going to invest in the only thing that I have some confidence in, which was me. And I used the, you know, we were profitable on that business year two, Mm -hmm. but, you know, as the majority of women around the world, I found out do, I reinvested into the business and into the business and into the business. So by the time I launched the sauces six years later, we had a nice big chunk of startup capital to get the thing off the ground. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I brought in over the years, just really, really smart, incredible people, but I'm the one.
1: At the so, which is very challenging, I'm <laughs> sure, because you probably carry the weight of all of the people that work for you around with you all the time, which I know from personal experience, which is very challenging. Talk about what you just said. You mentioned something about as many women do. You talked about reinvesting. Mm-hmm. Into- Let's talk about that for a second, because I want to know what it's like yeah, for you yeah. as a founder and also has that been... Created more challenges, less challenges?
0: Well, assets and liabilities, right? So yeah. I would say, you know, I'm actually writing a piece on this right now. Every once in a while, I write an editorial for the New York Post, which is really funny because I don't think I'm their target demographic. <laughs> <laughs> Just- Politically, but it's really fun because I get to not preach to my choir, you know, but there's a lot of research around, you know, women are better leaders in a lot of way. We're more collaborative. We are more empathic. We do, this is global. We reinvest in our businesses and our communities, whereas like, you know, again, it's reductive, but like the data, you know, men tend to, um, not as much so you know we just continue to put in and put in a little bit um we also return more you know i think for every 30 cents on the dollar that male founder returns we i think it's around 78 cents so yeah statistically so you know women were good leaders and we tend to be good founders and i think where it's been a liability is more in probably my investor, chest thumping, let's fucking go. Am I allowed to say that on here? You know, I don't put rocket ships on things. I put like a little like mountain climber, like going up the mountain with a stick or a chicken. I don't have bravado that way. And I think that it has probably... Bitten me a little bit because I tend to be overly honest. I tend to be very realistic. I think they want to hear like all this amazing news, but that is just not always the reality. It is a mixed bag. Of course there's good news, but there's also challenging stuff. And if you're going to invest in my company. I want you to know that I'm going to be candid with you. And I also want to know that I can be vulnerable with you. And I think perhaps I do that a little too early on in the process at times. And my guess is that that's been the liability.
1: You know, I think it's interesting because it's changed so much in the past, even six months, like that bravado and ego. And I'm and exaggeration and all the things that are so appealing to investors and humans, right? We love people. Mm -hmm. I I look like that. I get energized and excited when people tell stories that are like that, but the stories are just stories. And now you need to, I I think people are more open to this isn't all roses and butterflies and rainbows and there's reality, but I also know how to run a business and I'm profitable and I have a plan. Those things yeah. have become way more important and critical than they ever were because the the stuff, the, the days, well, at least it's on pause. The days of, I'm so awesome, give me $30 million, pause. It's not happening right now.
0: Yes. And I would only say that I think the real collateral damage are going to be the smaller brands that didn't do that in the first place because I think that some of these companies, Have investors that don't want to admit that they perhaps overvalued the company or perhaps bet too much of the farm. So they're not going to let them fail. They're going to re up. They're just going to do it at more favorable terms. Mm -hmm. So maybe those companies' founders won't, you know, do as well in this next round of funding, but the companies are going to be fine, most likely. I think who's going to really suffer are the emerging brands who didn't take on too much money that are now sort of in a position yes. to raise. Yes. And no, of course they're not profitable. They've been on shelf for eight months. And when did that become a thing? And you told me to go grow, grow, grow. That's right. And here That's I right. am, you know, I've grown, so, you know, fortunately. Yeah. yeah and here, where are you? You know, yeah. I mean a lot of it's like crickets for a lot of my founder friends. Fortunately, mm-hmm. we've never been that vulnerable to institutional investors and I that is, was a conscientious decision on my part, you know. But, you know, I'll give you another sort of little tidbit. I, a few years ago, I, I was running through a deck with, a, you know, an investor, a potential investor. And I said, we're going to do X next year and we'll likely do X plus Y the next year. And he said, why don't you just make it X plus Y next year and then you can double that the next year. Like just change the graph. And I was like, well, <laughs> you know, it's a bottoms up, like based on retail yeah. distribution. Yeah. Um, you know, and he said, let me just tell you, he's like, it might be based on reality, but everyone I know is going to look at that and assume that you've doubled it anyway. Oh, so, my gosh, you know, how do you run right. that?
1: That's wild.
0: So I'm like, okay, so this is tricky because now you're halving my number because it's a real number. So I don't know. I mean, I'm looking forward to a new era of, you know, getting back to, you know, maybe natural product industry, aligning more with natural product values and priorities. That seems like that would be kind of cool. But I also feel that there is going to be some real collateral damage and that makes me sad because there's going to be some great brands and some great founders that are just not going to get funded because people are nervous, even though they created the problem in the first place. Mm
1: -hmm. It'll probably swing back to the middle somewhere at some point, but I think this next 12 months is going to be rough go for some people. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think the valuation thing is going to, you know, that's going to be the problem. I'm sure people are going to get funded, but they're going to get funded and diluted pretty majorly and all these companies are going to be taking down rounds. And to your point, there has to be something in the middle. I just hope that it isn't, you know, investors, not all of them, but a bunch of them can feel like they're kind of doing the company a favor by Mm -hmm. investing as opposed to having an opportunity to, you know, ride a great... Train, yep. And I guess considering the failure rate, maybe there's some truth to that. But I hope that this isn't an opportunity for some predatory behavior, because you know I think I've seen some of it starting already, and it's oh. it can it's a little yucky.
1: So first of all, you've given us so many. It's such a good conversation. I could stay on the phone with you for hours. So I could ask you Thanks. a million more questions. <laughs> but I'd I love to hear if you. Uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Do you have any advice? I always ask people, what would you tell a founder? What do you wish you knew before it happened? Mm -hmm.
0: I talk to a lot of early stage founders because I host a podcast, what I call like the, how the hell am I going to build this? Yes. And I've been doing it since we first started in 2018. So my first episode was like, so what is operations? Like literally, I had no idea. And now it's like, tell me about email flows and you know, blah, blah, blah. So I, I think... Number one is do not make a product if you're not answering a problem. Somehow we got away from, if you cannot very easily say what you are the solution to, you don't have a why. And you have to have, again, the world doesn't need more stuff. Better packaging or a, a prettier can is not an answer. It's not a solution. What is the problem that currently exists in the world that your product is solving? That should be number one. Number two needs to be, can I make this profitably or can I get there in the next couple of years? And that starts off with margin. Somehow, I met a couple of founders in the last couple of weeks and they're like, you know, product margins are in the 20s. And I'm like, before distribution and trade spend, like you're you're going to be negative, yeah. you know? And they're like, well, we were told that it's okay. Cause with scale. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like if you can't make it with at least a 60% product margin or a very clear path to that within like the 18 months of launch and do not count on like scale to yeah, make up for it, you got to go back to the drawing board. And I would say three is going back to what you and I were talking about earlier, awareness on tiktok getting viral something doesn't mean jack what does is finding a group of people going back to the problem who love your product they will tell your story they Uh will pass it on they will buy it again and again and again you've been able to buy a sale since the beginning of time And, you know, there are companies out there that are living on ether because they've basically been buying their sales on the internet for the last several years. Now the chickens are going to come to roost, if that is the expression. And you got to have people who are really loyal and who love you. Again, like what we said, they're going to drop off. They're going to move away, all of that. So you do have to keep that, you know,
1: doing that thing. That's exactly.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you need to keep the funnel kind of moving, but you do really need, you know, I don't understand when the goal became views on a video that just isn't going to do it. And if you don't have distribution, why are you spending any time making yourself viral? Just it's got to get into people's mouths, and people have to try it and they have to love it and they have to buy it again and tell all their friends. Mm -hmm. And it's slow and it's sloggy and it's not that sexy and no one's putting on LinkedIn and no one's writing about it and people, but that's the way to do it. I see it over and over and over again.
1: It's really good advice. And it's not what people generally hear because there's so much hype and press around all the platforms and what people are getting to do on those platforms. But I agree with you just, you know, it's a flash in the pan right? Mm -hmm. It happens. And then you have to keep it on. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. You cannot turn it off. As soon as you take your foot off the gas, everything stops. And And by the way, what worked
0: a few months ago doesn't work today. I'm a huge believer in YouTube. I love YouTube. You know, the fact that you Google something and the first thing that comes up is a YouTube video, that should give you an indication it's a good place to live. No one's giving anything to China, right? Like, it's a very good place yep. to be. It's very hard to build a deep audience there, but we've invested a lot in YouTube because we know that if we build it and we keep sending people there, eventually it's going to yeah. take, you know? And and yep. so that's a big channel for us. You know, we have TikTok. We have 50,000 followers on TikTok, but we don't think of it as like a real community. Yeah. They're not diehard Haven's Kitchen people,
1: you yep. know? they're TikTok people.
0: Yeah, exactly. For now.
1: Yeah. yeah. So exactly. for now. Oh my God. So much good conversation. I mean, I appreciate the candor and the transparency and the look, this isn't going to be easy. And there are ways to do it and ways to mess it up. I think that's really awesome. I think that's what people really need to hear. Yeah. Anything Thank else? You. Any other thoughts you'd love to leave us with?
0: No, this was really fun. I um, thank you for asking such great questions. I had a good time just, you know, pontificating.
1: (laughs) Me too, me too. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.